Tonight's episode of Legacy Battle is brought to you by Atlas Benefits. Atlas Benefits has solutions for your insurance needs. Atlas Benefits can help you obtain Medicare, health, or life insurance, and employee benefits. You can find them on the web at www.atlasbenefits.com. Or you can contact Rob Ducey or Roy Smith at 727-600-2892 and mention Legacy Battle Podcast. Atlas Benefits has all the solutions for your insurance needs. Enjoy the show. This is Legacy Battle. Make sure you hit subscribe, whatever you're listening on. I am Michael Adams, creator of Legacy Battle. My panelists tonight from the Gridiron Battle Zone, Brian King, Penn State Collegiate All-Star, Kevin Adams, Ball State athlete, Paul Havocott. Our special guest tonight, we're joined by a nine-year Major League Baseball veteran, played the Twins, Blue Jays, Indians, and Orioles. He has four seasons in the top three of double plays turned at his position, including being number one two times. Two seasons top five in assists. Such a good filler this guy was. He is seventh all-time in range factor at his position. Think how many players have played ball through the years, and he is seventh all-time. Um, and he's also 50th in fielding percentage all-time, so that's top 50 there. 1995 Rookie of the Year, Marty Cordova. Marty, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, those are some stats I've never heard before. Th- thanks for mentioning that. I feel just a little better about my career now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, you had a very solid career, man. Nothing, nothing to look back on on that one and not be like you yeah. were good. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I might be in the top something for amount of double plays that I actually grounded into. For, I just hit into a lot of gra- a lot of. Uh, we don't need to talk about that. We'll edit that part out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, it's all part of the game, though. You know what? You can look at it. You can look at things two different ways. In my perspective, is. I hit the ball so hard so often that I hit ground balls, bullets to shortstops and second basements yeah. that they turn two on anybody. You know, Suzuki would be, Ichiro would be double play on that, you know, those hard right. hit balls. Well, tonight's we'll debate is going to be guys who could turn double plays, the top 50 second basemen of the last 50 years. So we're going back to 1970, basically. After, we'll, as always, we'll have some questions uh, from Marty about his career. But we're going to start out tonight with Joe Morgan. Yeah, I went with Joe Morgan. I, I'm thinking he should be one or two here, but let me know what you guys think. Born September 19th, 43. We lost our friend Joe in October of 2020, but he's 1990 Hall of Fame inductee. Started his career with the Houston Colt 45s in 1963. And uh, his career actually ends up spanning from 63 to 84, about 21 years playing for Houston, Cincinnati, one quick return back to Houston in 80, then San Francisco, then two quick stops in Philly and Oakland uh, there at the end of the career. Ends up finishing with a 271 batting average, 268 home runs, over 2,500 hits. He goes like 25-17. Uh, 1,133 RBIs, 689 stolen bases, got 449 doubles. Joe ended up appearing in 10 All-Star games and won uh, All-Star MVP once. 
is part of probably well most well known for the Big Red Machine. He's part of the Big Red Machine. He had made uh, eight consecutive All Star game appearances from '72 to '79. Those were pretty much the bulk of his of his really good years. Five Gold Glove winner uh, consecutive years from '73 to '77. Two-time MVP winner uh, Morgan was also the National League MVP in '75 and '76. He got some first series, the first second baseman in the history of the National League to win MVP back-to-back. In Morgan's NL MVP years, he combined for a 324 batting average, 44 home runs, and 205 runs batted in, 246 walks, and 127 uh, stolen bases. Good base runner, Silver Slugger Award winner. Uh, part of two World Series teams, led the Reds to consecutive championships, uh, he drove in Ken Griffey, uh, Ken Griffey for the winning run in Game 7 of the 75 World Series. Uh, was also National League MVP, like I said, uh, in those years. Many people feel he's well, most well-known for his time with the Big Red Machine. Um, he hit 288 during that time, 327 during his tenure with the Reds. Uh, he was on the base, on, on base a lot, a lot of walks, team player, 392 on-base percentage. Um Let's see about the stolen bases here. Uh, just a straight base thief stealing 689 bases for an 80% success rate. And he was still effective in his 40s as he finished the career with the athletics. On his 40th birthday in 83, he had four hits and two, uh, two home runs and a double at Veterans Stadium. And then, I, you know, for the, I guess, the younger generation, as effective as he was at second base, he was even more successful as a broadcaster and worked for NBC, ABC, and later on on ESPN. I could go on and on about his broadcast career, but for me, the, his voice brought comfort. He kind of symbolized baseball. Excellent commentator, polished. Uh, this guy was an all-around Mr. Baseball. Marty, growing up for the, me and my panelists here, the voice of baseball was, was Joe Morgan. You know, we grew up with his voice. I mean – we all know how good he was on the field, but maybe like, what are your thoughts on what he actually meant to baseball beyond just playing on the field? Sure. Well, a couple things about that. You know, as you were going over those stats that were, first of all, the most shocking thing to me by far, and I can guarantee you 99.99% of people will get this wrong. Who had a career higher batting average, Joe Morgan or Marty Cordova? I can promise you nobody would say Marty Cordova. So that's kind of shocking to me. It was really shocking. I'm like, he hit 271. I'd have thought he was a career 320 hitter, to be honest. But uh, yeah, so anyway, I'm joking around about that. But what, what's amazing about him and what I always look at, it, what I consider a, a really good hitter, is a guy that has more base on balls than strikeouts. And he has a lot more base, almost double base on balls than strikeouts, and which to me is like crazy. How does he have a 271 batting average when he's that that good of an eye at the plate? Because I think that's a big problem with a lot of hitters, even nowadays, is they don't really understand the strike zone. I didn't understand the strike zone at all. It, Tom Kelly would laugh. He'd say, 2-0, if they threw their glove up there, you'd swing at it. And it was true because I was, like, swinging or not swinging a lot of the times. And sometimes with the pitch bounce, I'd swing because I just was so ready to swing. So, um, yeah, Joe Morgan has some amazing stats. And one of the things, too, that to consider for him is he played in an era where Second basemen weren't hitters. They were just defensively – they were known for their defense, and that's all they really had to bring to the table was a great defensive player. He was not only an unbelievable great defensive player, he stole bases. He also hit for average – I mean, not for average. He hit for uh, – he, he, he scored a lot of runs. He got on base. He did all these other things, and he even had a little bit of power. Well, not, I shouldn't say a little bit of power. 268 home runs is a lot of power. 
for that period of time. So to me, he stands out as one of the best second bases of all time just because of how good he was compared to the rest of the second basements of that era. And now, like, looking forward to Robbie Alomar, who I, I, I was fortunate enough to play a whole season in left field with him at second base. His offensive numbers, I think, are a little bit stronger, but the times have changed a little more. But Robbie, to me, is, is a, a run for Joe's money because he was – maybe I didn't see Joe play every day, obviously – but Robbie Almar was unbelievable at second baseman. Him and Biscal together were the two best players I've ever seen turning double plays or just making plays. And Robbie could steal bases. He was an unbelievably smart hitter. He could pick up when pitchers were tipping pitches and he would help other players on the team. He'd tell us, guys, he's doing this, 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 when he throws a fastball. And he knew almost every pitcher. To me, that wasn't really cheating. That's just getting an advantage when a pitcher's tipping his pitches. It's not like somebody's telling you what's coming. You're, you're, you're picking it up through your you know, all knowledge and understanding of the game and little nuances of what pitchers do. And that, to me, that's absolutely fair. And I don't think anybody will argue that. So uh, sorry if that long-winded answer, but yeah, I, I really feel like Robbie Alomar and Joe Morgan are two of the top of all time. Well, you mentioned Alomar, so let's move on to Roberto Alomar. All right. Roberto Alomar, 1988 to 2004, with the Padres, Blue Jays, Orioles, Indians, uh, Mets, White Sox, and Diamondbacks. Um, he was a second baseman throughout his career, which is not true of some of the guys that we're going to talk about tonight. But he was, from the very beginning to the very end, played second base. Out on a diamond, there may have never been a better fielding second baseman. I mean, 10 gold gloves is more than any other second baseman in Major League history. Uh, he made plenty of acrobatic plays in the field. Uh, he ended his career with a 984 fielding percentage. He led the AL, um, uh, AL second baseman four times in fielding percentage. On the base pass, Roberto was, he was a threat. He really had to be taken seriously. Uh, 474 stolen bases in his career. He had at least 20 stolen bases in 10 different seasons. And his career high was 55 in 1993. Um, he could also leg out a triple. Um, you know, he had 80 in his career. He topped tri 10 triples twice in his, in, uh, in a season during his career. Uh, at the plate, Roberto was a big factor as well. Uh, he had a 300 career, uh, batting average and his average 307 with the Blue Jays still stands as their franchise record. Um, he had some power as well, 210 career home runs. Um, uh, you know, and, and then something that is really all important is being able to come through in the clutch. And Alomar was able to do that. He had three, four, seven uh, batting average in the World Series. And he had a game-tying homer in game four of the ALCS against the A's, uh, which is really a huge reason why they won it all that year. Um, he was a Hall of Famer. So we're, we're talking, you know, 12-time All-Star, more gold gloves than any second baseman, Speed on the base pass, clutch bat. So, uh, Roberto Almar, one of the best ever. Marty, you, you mentioned earlier Roberto's fielding. I mean, is he, in your opinion, the best fielder that we're talking about today? I'm looking down the list, and I don't, I don't see one better in the field. No, I totally agree. And like I said earlier, I actually got to see him play every day, and it was just, it's just amazing. I mean, a guy can be that consistent, that. It almost looked nonchalant at times because him and Omar had such a good time. They catch the ball bare hand on a double play or, or like a really hard hit ground ball. They catch it with their bare hand and throw it. And and it's all it's all great and good until you make an error doing that. But they never did. And it was, you know, I said, well, they're going to do it at one point. They're going to regret that when they make that big error. But they ne just never did. 
So the confidence level of these two guys, uh, you know, Robbie and when we know we're really talking about Robbie, but the combination of him and Vizquel to me that I got to see every day was amazing. And, and all the things you're saying, when you want the game on the line, you wanted Robbie at the plate. You really did. And the guy was so smart. He would, it, it, sometimes people thought he was selfish at times. Like he would be, there'd be two outs and he'd bunt with two strikes even sometimes, but he knew he could get on base, steal a base and then possibly score a run. So he, he did those little things very, very well. He was a very smart baseball player. And a lot of people misunderstood him because he, he didn't like to speak English a lot. He was a very private guy. So people kind of made their own opinions of him. But to me, as a teammate and a guy, I really liked hanging out with Robbie. I thought he was a good guy. Well, let's move on to Ryan Sandberg. Nickname uh, Rhino. I played for the Phillies and Cubs for 16 years uh, in the league. He made 10 consecutive All-Star appearances um, and started second base for nine of those uh, and winning nine consecutive gold gloves. This dude was a beast in, in the field. Uh, those nine gold gloves are between 83 and 91, which is second all-time at that position. Um, he had 989 fielding percentage, which was an MLB record um, at second base when he retired in 97. Uh, he was elected in the Hall of Fame in 2005. He finished his career with a batting average of 285, 2,386 hits, he had some power, 282 home runs, um, 1,061 uh, RBIs. Uh, he was the NL MVP in 1984, seven-time Silver Slugger Award winner. Uh, he was the NL home run leader in 1990. The Cubs retired his number. Uh, he, he definitely has the offensive and defensive skills. Bleach Report, uh, they did a top 10 greatest second baseman of all time. And they actually uh, ranked Sandberg number three, only behind Joe Morgan and Roger Hornsby. Uh, with all of his accomplishments, kind of crazy, he only made the postseason twice. Um, he definitely had the batting uh, and, the, and the fielding um, stats to have a good argument to be in, in our, our list here. He hit over 300 five times in his career. So a third of his career, he was batting over 300. And he went on uh, to get the record at 123 games without committing an error. So the dude was great in the field, great at batting. Definitely should be in our list today. I love Ryan Sandberg and, and that 989 fielding percentage you just gave me is impressive, but he didn't exactly have the range factor of some of the, the other second baseman we're talking about. But Marty, Ryan was somebody that retired and then came back out of retirement. He retired because of injuries. Did you ever give that any thought? You had a lot of injuries in your career, like maybe retire for a year or two and then come back healthy did that ever cross your mind as a player no not not ever not even kind of because I, I knew if, if you walk away from the game for a month you know you, it's hard to come back it really is maybe it's easier for some people that are super talented but I obviously was not a, a blazing fast I'm not a five-tool player I mean I had some of those skills but just not like a King Rippey Jr. where you could just come out show up and you're just great I really worked hard at, at baseball I was the first one in the field, last one to leave. So yeah, those that I, I never ever contemplated. I, I knew I was getting a lot of injuries. I had plantar fasciitis, which is a terrible injury. It lasts like three years. Had a bunch of other little nagging injuries. I ended up having back two back surgeries when I retired. So it's it's just these things playing on the turf in Minnesota and I wore spikes every game. I even when during practice I was just young and dumb and thought that I would never break down. So I, instead of taking care of my feet and wearing comfortable tennis shoes during batting practice, I wore spikes and I would field ground balls and fly balls in practice like it was game situation because I just wanted to get better. So not realizing that I needed to take care of my body a little more when I was, even when I was young and strong, 
or it would end up happening as I broke down over the years. And um, it was just Tom Kelly was a manager that one year I played every spring training game and every game of the season, he he was just, you're not going to just be designated the next outfielder. You got to earn the spot. So imagine one spring training playing every at bat of every game. I don't know if anybody's ever done that, to be honest. But yeah, to answer your question, it's very rare that someone can retire and come back and be good. They have to be a unique person. And as far as Ryan Sandberg goes, it's just you're bringing back some memories for me. He, he retired right when I started playing. And I do remember that crazy streak, he had, airless streak he had was a big deal at the time. And I, I know he didn't have the greatest range in the world. But to me, I, as a pitcher, sometimes, or as a player even, do you want a guy that, that makes all these crazy great plays, but then makes 20 errors a season? Or a guy that makes every single routine play, some really good plays at time, because he was still a great player but he made every single routine and maybe a little above routine play and never made an error. I think pitchers would say, I'd rather have that guy that I can count on that makes the right plays and knows where to throw the right bases. Doesn't try to be too flashy and to be too, you know, on that side of the, of the spectrum that they're more level-headed and just want to make sure they, they make every routine play. I think pitchers really appreciate that. Let's move on to our only still active player. That's going to be Robinson Cano. 2005 to present, still going. Uh, played for the Yankees, Mariners. He's on the Mets now. Um, this guy was second in rookie of year voting his his year in 05 there. He's an eight-time All-Star, five-time Silver Slugger, two-time Gold Glove winner, and two Wilson Defensive Player Awards. Um, he's got some nice international stuff, too, at the uh, World Baseball Classic. He's the MVP, and uh, he's on the All-World Team in 2013. He's got a gold medal, a World Series in the same year there, back in 09. Um, All-Star Game MVP in 2017. He run the, won the Home Run Derby in 2011. He's a career 303 hitter. Now, he, he is older, so that may come down here with however many years he decides to play after this. But uh, over 1,300 RBIs, 2,600 hits, 334 homers. Um, Joe Torrey who was his manager with the Yankees for a while, you know, compared Cano to Rob Carew, who we're going to talk about here a little bit later. So that's an honor to be even mentioned in that category. Um, six times in the top 10 for MVP voting, and four of those were top five. So he was always one of the top 10 players in the league. Um, he's currently 28th all-time in doubles. If he plays this full season, he'll probably uh, get to about 20 when I was looking at the list. So. Um, you know, Cano could field too. He's 14th all-time in assists and 19th all-time in putouts, eighth in uh, turning double plays, 988 fielding percentage, which is 22nd all-time uh, for his position there. So, pretty solid guy. I know he's had the, the two PED suspensions that kind of might tarnish his legacy a little bit, um, but he's still making his legacy. So we'll see how he returns here from that long, long suspension this upcoming year. Um, I know Sterling Marte, who just signed uh, with the Mets, was really looking forward to playing with him this year. So we'll see how that all turns out. Uh, Marty, with with Cano, I mean, everybody's always going to point to those suspensions. But what, what are your thoughts on Cano as a player? You know, it's funny. I just completely forgot about him. I, I did glance at the list and I looked at them a little bit, but I, I did look up Cano. He he might be the best hitter out of the whole group, to be honest. I mean, the guy was amazing. I saw him play a lot, and the dude was amazing hitter and and just an amazing fielder. He he might even have more range than Robbie Almar does. 
did. No kidding, man. His, and I mean, you guys have all seen him play. The, his arm strength and the way he could throw from those crazy angles. Again, he was that guy that every now and then made an error because he was being a little flashy on a ball he shouldn't have been. But the guy's amazing. And his numbers are absolutely – I'm still looking at him now like, wow. He's he's close to 3,000 hits, 330 homers, 1,300 RBIs. I mean, the guy's solid, solid hitter. I mean, he again, he might be the best hitter on this list. If I had to say who would I want to be my number one hitter out of this group, batting third in the lineup, it might be him. It, it'd be him or Robbie, I guess. And I guess if you need to lead off hitter, you might go Joe Morgan. I, I guess it's hard to say because you'd want every one of these guys in your lineup, but I think Cano might be one of the purest hitters here. Well, let's move on to the, the oldest player on our list, and he just barely made it into the 50-year category, <laughs> Bill Mazeroski. Yeah, Bill Maz, born in 1936, so a little bit of time ago, from Wheeling, West Virginia, Played for the Bucks from 56 to 72, all one team for 17 years. Kind of as an aside here, Mike Adams loves when people play for one team, so I'm kind of expecting a vote here from Mike unless he wants to be a – I got his player. autograph on a baseball out there, so. <laughs> that would be the, some blatant hypocrisy if you do not vote for him. But anyway, I move on. Eight-time Gold Glove winner, 10-time All-Star, 138 home runs, 853 RBIs. I still can't beat Marty on batting average here. He, he finished in at 260, so what, like 14 points under Marty. Uh, I pick, I try to pick people that were under Marty's batting average. Thank you for that. I made feel a little better. <laughs> 1,706 double plays as a second baseman. This guy was a double play machine. When he retired in 72, that led the league. Hall of Fame inductee in 2001. He was part of two World Series teams of 60 where they won 4-3 to three over the Yanks. 71 uh, World Series, 4-3 uh, over uh, Marty's former Orioles. For that 71 season, it was just him and the late, great Roberto uh, Clemente remaining from the 60 season. I'd say probably most notably, Bill's like a, a key component of, uh, in one of the most potent offenses in the majors. In an 11-year period from 57 to 67, he had 121 home runs, 714 RBIs were – kind of the most of any second baseman in either league. This was achieved despite the fact that he played at Forbes Field. So for those who don't know Forbes Field, very cavernous, very large, distance in in left and center field were were really, really hard to get out, hit, hit home runs out there. It was uh, a lot of fly balls. He hit more than twice as many homers on the road, 93, than at home. I think he had 45 at home in his career. So that field was tough to play in. He might have had a little bit more luck if he was, you know, playing for another team. But 17 years all with the Buccos, I think he might squeak in here at number five. But, you know, we'll see what you guys say. He has the most famous home run probably in baseball history. Nobody else has done it. Game seven, bottom of the ninth against the Yankees to win a World Series. I mean, Marty, that that's probably – the biggest hit anybody can have, especially because it was against the Yankees, right? Yeah, well, it's. I think when you're a kid, either you're hitting the home run for the Yankees or against the Yankees. It's kind of a love-hate <laughs> thing there. You, it's it's kind of hard to be like, well, I, I don't really care one way or the other. You you typically do if you're a baseball fan. You either think they're evil and that they've bought all their play all their championships and they've always amassed these great teams unfairly, or you say. We love it. Yeah, we did all that and more. And then I'm happy we're a Yankees fan and we've got a lot of pennants. So you kind of either one way or the other with that, my opinion. He's a great fielder. He got put in the Hall of Fame by that Veterans Committee. Thank goodness for them. I mean, Bob, yeah. uh, Marty, like, 
why is it that some players, they just get omitted? It, it doesn't make any sense to me. They put up the Hall of Fame numbers and they don't get in. Because it's subjective. It's it's people that are voting. And when you have human beings involved, you're going to have biases that are going to appear, whether they even know it or not. We all just do that. We, we make decisions based on past experiences or thoughts we have. Or a lot of times, maybe they didn't even watch the guy as much, but they're going off recollections from other people. And just somebody says, oh, I didn't like him. He was a bad guy. Like Robbie Alomar, he had a terrible incident of, of spitting on John, on John Hirschbeck's face. And it tainted him as a person in a lot of people's eyes. And I think that he really... It's a terrible thing he did, but unfortunately he did it. And, and I don't think that really encompasses who Rob, Robbie is as a person. He's not that kind of a guy. But so my point is, yeah, these guys, sorry, I'm downstairs in my lobby. These guys have these votes, but these votes are very subjective to what they feel. And, and there's no real like restrictions. You can say, I don't want to vote for him. And I just don't. That's my, my prerogative. So yeah, there's a lot of guys I feel that probably should be in and there's guys that maybe shouldn't. It's a lot of guys it's because the media loved them. Some guys, they didn't like them. So yeah, it, it's, it's always unfortunate when to me, your baseball skills should get you into the hall of fame. And I know the PED stuff is very, and even now with the scuffing balls and, and pine tar on the balls, giving signals, all this stuff is very confusing with the stats but I think if you compare people to their eras it kind of then takes that out of the equation if you say well how good was this guy to his era even whether he did these things or not you know I guess that's maybe the only fair way to, to try to say that or you'll do what other writers have done in the past and just say anybody that's in that era I'm not voting for a period and those guys are some of them are just stubborn they'll say well I don't think he probably did anything wrong but just because he's in that era I'm going to punish him which that makes no sense to me Right. You have to kind of, but then again, how do you know inside somebody's body whether he's taking PDs or not? Because not not everybody is taking things that show you as incredible Hulk. You can take things that make you very strong and you're very skinny. So there's just many different ways you can you can get an advantage. So it's kind of hard for me to say, well, that guy looks like he did, and that guy looks like he didn't. But I'm not voting for either because they're in the same era. So I, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but it is it is very confusing on how these guys pick who is going to be in the Hall of Fame and who's not. I think we'd all agree with that for sure. All right, let's move on to, uh, well, a sure Hall of Famer who, who got in right away, Rod Carew. All right, Hall of Famer Rod Carew. Uh, 1967 to 1985 with the Twins and the Angels. Now, contrary to popular belief, Rod Carew is not Jewish. Um, he was interviewed by TMZ after the popular Hanukkah song came out uh, from uh, Adam Sandler. Uh, during they did during Saturday Night Live, but Rod maintained that that conversion never took place. So there's that. So no, no confusion there. He's actually from Panama, and he is the only Panamanian player other than Mariano Rivera in the Hall of Fame now. So why is Rod Crew in the Hall of Fame? Really, if you break it down, it's simply because he was one of the best pure hitters that the game of baseball has ever seen, regardless of position or era. Uh, three times he led the league in hits, twice in triples. He was the batting champion seven times. Um, and he led the league in on-base percentage four times. In 1977, his 388 batting average still stands as the fourth highest mark since 1950. Um, Carew is ranked 40th all-time in baseball history with a 328 career batting average. And he is 93rd all-time in on-base percentage. Uh, he was a pretty good base stealer as well. 353 stolen bases in his career. He once stole every base in a single inning one time. Um, and in 1969 alone, 
he stole home plate seven times. Wow. So other accolades include 18-time All-Star, 1967 AL Rookie of the Year, AL MVP in 1977, a member of both the Twins and Angels Halls of Fame, and his number 29 is retired by both teams. So there's Hall of Famer Rod Carew. Marty, you already brought up the hypocrisy of the Hall of Fame voting committee, but here's another one where a guy makes an all-star team 18 times and he doesn't get 100% of the votes. <laughs> but, uh, what, what, what are your yeah. thoughts on Rob? I mean, great hitter, great player. He's even famous because of that Hanukkah song, as Brian mentioned. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? Honestly, one of the things that stand out to me is he's a really nice guy. I've met him, unfortunately, I've met him a few times, and he's just a really, really nice man, which is, you know, a lot of guys that have had these careers are, are not as humble as he is. He's a super humble guy. But what's funny is you, as you mentioned that he stole every base in one inning. It, it, it literally reminds me of, like, a little league team with one guy that's amazing, also, you know, 12-year-old that's six foot three, and all the rest of the kids are, you know, five foot two. And then you, it's a joke. Like, no, I, I would if you had said somebody stole all the bases in one inning in a major league game, I'd have said that's not possible. But, but nobody's going to let let a team and let somebody embarrass you that bad by stealing four bases. You'd almost like, I, I'd do anything to let him not steal home on me in that situation, I guess, is what I'm saying. That's pretty embarrassing for that pitcher, obviously. So, anyway, but his career numbers are just, I mean, they are just amazing. And again, he hit an era when it really wasn't a hitter's type you know, league at that time, there wasn't, the balls maybe a little bit different, a lot of things different. The parks were much bigger back then. That was one thing about Masraski, I'm, I'm sure I just butchered his name, is that the field you play in is so huge. And um, to give a really good example of that, that, that everybody, even young people, younger fans can, can, can relate to is David Ortiz. I played with him in Minnesota. He was a rookie there. My I think my last year there, uh, 98, I believe he might have been a rookie there or whatever. But he would, Minnesota in left center was like 399 and it was 350 to left and it's like 405 to center. So left center and left field, it was legitimate. You had to hit the ball there. I know right field, they had that the baggy and all that. It was easy to home runs, whatever, but that isn't necessarily true either. But my point is David Ortiz has crazy power to left center. So there'd be a game, he'd be up, he'd hit a bomb to left center it would be caught at the warning track of the wall and he'd be 0 for 1 and totally upset. And that would be in his brain the rest of the game is how the hell could that be an out? And then now you take that same guy taking the Fenway and that swing is absolutely perfect for that. And so instead of being 0 for 1 with no double and no RBIs, now he's 1 for 1 with a double, two RBIs or one RBI, whatever, you know, you get the point. And as a different human being that's batting his second, third, and fourth time with the confidence that he's got a double already under his belt he feels like he doesn't have to pull everything. He can stay on the ball. It's just a completely different guy. And as you guys know, confidence is everything in this game. It's, it really is. If you feel like you're, you're an out, you're an out. If you feel like you're not an out, you're not an out. And I can speak, which is crazy, is I've gone over like 40-something in my career at one point during a stretch. And it was almost like three weeks. I didn't get a hit. But then I've also had a 22 and a 26-game hitting streak which were like a month where I did not get a hit in the game, which is, makes no sense either. But, but you'd say, how could a guy be so good and so bad? And it was really literally it, the, when I was seeing the ball well and I knew the difference between a strike and a ball and the umpires were being fair, they weren't calling like that 2-1 pitch which four inches outside a strike. Instead, it would be 3-1. and one. Or that slider that was an inch off the plate, they would, it would be 3-1 and one instead of putting you at 2-2, two and two, which is a completely different you know, situation. 
And during that time, it would be when I was in a hitting streak, I'd see the ball leave the pitcher's hand and go, that's outside by an inch. I, I would know immediately. But when I'm struggling, I was like, I, I could, I would, I would come back and tell the hitting coach, Terry Crowley, that ball was at least a foot outside. I bet my life on it. And then I'd go look at the play and look at the replay. I'm like, Jesus, that got like two inches of the plate. I'm not seeing the ball very well. And then I would look at my head and as I'm taking the pitch, I'm moving towards the left, towards left field and not seeing the ball. So therefore, as my head's moving, the ball was moving and I couldn't have good depth perception or tell where the ball was, even though I would have bet my life that it was not a strike. So anyway, I guess the point is, is that eyes are everything in the game for hitters and guys that can see the ball really well have such a big advantage. And also, I don't want to go down this road too, but this, having this new K zone and the strike zone where umpires have to be accountable is completely different than when I played. And if you want at the end of, the, end of this, I'll tell you guys a pretty a, a, two funny stories about that exact uh, scenario of umpires that are treating superstars with a completely different level than they treat rookies or guys that aren't superstars. We'll have to get into that during the Q&A for sure. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's bring into the batter box here, Craig Biggio. Vigio, uh, played his whole career with the Astros. So, uh, Paul's little, uh, tidbit about his player playing for the same team his whole career. Vigio did the same. Second baseman, he also played outfielder and catcher, uh, but he's most notable for playing second base. He played from 88 to 05, seven time all star, um, starting at second for four of those. He is the only player to ever be named an all star and to be awarded the silver slugger award at both catcher and second base. So that's an that's interesting stat there. Uh, he was a part of the Killer Bees, uh, leading the Astros uh, to six playoff appearances, one World Series appearance that was in his final season. He is ranked sixth in NL history in games played, fifth at bats. He had 3,060 hits, uh, ranking him 24th in MLB history and third for second baseman. See, seventh in runs, uh, he had 291 home runs, ranking him fourth by second baseman. Only, uh, I think, Cano uh, is higher than him uh, for the people that we're talking about today. He had 668 career doubles, ranking him sixth in the MLB history and second by a right-handed hitter. His 56 doubles in 1999 was the most in the majors in 63 years. He batted 304 times and scored 100 runs eight times. He holds the Astros records for most games, most at-bats, most hits, most runs scored, most doubles, most total bases and most extra base hits uh, and ranks second in, in, in RBIs, uh, walks, and stolen bases. He holds the NL record for the most leadoff home runs at 53 and is one of five players with 250 home runs or more and 400 steals. He's a five-time service slugger recipient, four-time Gold Glove Award winner. He led the NL second baseman in assists six times and putouts five times. He retired uh, fourth in NL history in games at second base six in assists, and his fielding percentage was 984, seventh in putouts and double plays, eighth in total chances. Uh, he was the ninth player in the 3,000-hit club to collect all of his hits with one team. Uh, Biggio led the NL in, in times hit by a pitch five times uh, for a career total of 285, so he's getting on base, uh, unfortunately, by getting hit. <laughs> but only one other player uh, was ahead of him. They had 287. That was Huey Jennings. Uh, he finished his career with a 281 batting average, he did receive the 2005 Hutch Award for perseverance through adversity. The Astros retired his number the year following his retirement. He was elected into the Hall of Fame in 2015, uh, and he's the first member of the Hall of Fame to rep the Astros jersey on his plaque. This dude had it all. He had the batting. He has the fielding. He's high up in the stats for second baseman. Um, 
you know, I know Marty said uh, Cano was would be probably your best hitter. Biggio is not far behind. I got, and he has a strong argument to be up there. Marty, how yeah. hard is oh, it at the major league level to transition from catcher to second base or from one position to another position at all? Uh, well, I'll give you just my personal experiences. I started out, and I guess every kid did. I was a shortstop and a pitcher. I, when I played even as high as college, I was, I was actually drafted as a shortstop, but I was actually setting records for the most amount of errors a person can make in that season. It was crazy. I couldn't feel the ball. I could feel the ball. I couldn't throw it. I had Steve Sack syndrome so bad. It was crazy. So I ended up going to the minor leagues with the Twins. They moved me to third base. And then uh, one day during spring training, all of the head, head brass was at watching this A versus low A game. I got a ground ball hit to me at third, and I threw it not only over first base, over the wall, over the club locker room, over the freaking – it was ridiculous how far I threw it over the first base. And the next day I had an outfielder's glove in my locker, and they're like, you're good. We, we don't need to see any more at third base. <laughs> you have no chance of being a third baseman in the major leagues. So anyway, yeah, playing two positions is incredibly hard. Catching is one of the hardest positions, period, and that's why most catchers can't hit very well because it's so hard to, to find somebody that has those skills as a catcher at, and, and hit. That's just such a rare combination. So for him to do that and to be able to play second base is just a, a tribute to how great of an athlete he was. One thing he mentioned and now it brought back, as you guys are talking, it's bringing back memories, is he would wear this huge elbow pad and put it out over the plate, especially with two strikes, and was notorious for, and even pitchers were just furious, the fact that he would just stand there and wouldn't move and let curveballs hit him, fastballs hit him, and just like, I'd rather walk or get hit by a pitch than strike out. So to me, those 285 hit by pitches, I'd say probably at least half of them would be strikeouts. Or more than that, 200 of the 285 would be strikeouts for a normal person that would move out of the way of the ball. So, yeah, and then another point with, with Craig is the guy was just, if you look at his numbers, what stands out to me, the dude was never hurt. He's got 770, 750 plate appearances. Oh, my God, he played 162 games quite a few times. These, these amount of at-bats he has, and it's no, not taking a thing away from him. He's a great player. But when you have that kind of volume, these stats are going to just build up. Because it, 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 just think about it. If a guy has 300 at-bats as opposed to 600, it's just double the volume. So I'm not taking nothing away from him because he was consistent. He did play a lot, but he was also a very great, you know, he had great talent as well. So the combination of the two makes him one of the most complete players. I totally agree. You could count on him to be in the lineup every day. He was a clutch hitter. He knew how to run the bases. He was a great teammate. Everybody loved him on the team. I knew that. Everybody, even a lot of the every guys in the league liked him. Everybody pulled for that guy. So, yeah, he's definitely, as we keep going through this list, it's like, man, I, they're all so good, and, and especially in different unique ways, it's hard to say who's the best. So let's move on to our final player tonight. It's going to be Bobby Gritch, and I can see, I know Kevin's over there saying, who is Bobby Gritch? <laughs> Never heard of him. So <laughs> played from 1970 all the way to 86, Briefly with the Orioles, most of his time on the Angels. Still works for the, the Angels. Um, he's a six-time All-Star, four-time Gold Glover, Silver Slugger, and AL Home Run Leader uh, in 1981. And uh, that, he was becoming the, the first second baseman since 1929 to lead the league in home runs. So that was a really long time period there that uh, it took for another second baseman to lead the league. Um, he set the AL second base record with 485, 484 putouts in 1974. Um, he is what I consider a Hall of Fame snub. Um, his draw score is the highest of any eligible position player that's not in the Hall of Fame. So you got to kind of wonder why he's not in there because he's actually higher than some people who are in there. 
Um, he's led the league in hits by pitch, uh, top 10 in sack hits, sack flies. This is the type of guy that uh, he would do all the little things, everything that was necessary to win the games. I like players like that. I, I represented Jeff Cirillo on our Brewers show. Um, you know, I love guys that just go out there and work really hard. Uh, he's 17th all-time in putouts, 19th all-time in assists, and 12th in turning double plays. And just a little little side note here, he is kind of has a famous home run himself in the playoffs against the Boston Red Sox where he, he hit the ball deep. Uh, it was about three feet short of the wall, and, and Dave Henderson decided to put it and catch it in his glove and then, you know, drop it over the wall. So it was the home run there that helped win that game. And then uh, he's done something all of us have probably wanted to do at one time. He dumped a beer on a president, Richard Nixon. So <laughs> Marty, uh, as I mentioned, he was a grinder, did all those little things. I mean, what does it mean to a team to have a, a guy like that who goes out and just plays hard every day? He might not be the best player on the field, but he just plays hard every day. It, it means a lot. It really does. The, it, the team rallies around guys like that. They're like the team leaders, a guy that's going to play when he's hurt. Not uh, he's going to slide hard to second base, run the bases hard, just brings that energy to the team. And, it, and unless you played, it's hard to really understand the dynamics of teams like that. Is you're going to have your guy that's like the super stud guy that doesn't really have to work that hard. He just does everything, and it just works out great for him. And then there's guys that work really hard and, and aren't as talented. And there's guys that grind like that, like even a Pete Rose type. I mean, he was super talented, but that guy played hard. And it's hard to come out and play 162 games plus 30 spring training games and be up for every game. And some dudes can do it. Some guys can't. Some guys have that ability to just leave it all out on the field. Other guys just don't have it. And that's just, I think, what makes certain players better than others is they have that mental toughness that others just don't have. And that's, you know, that can make somebody that's an average type player. And I've seen many of these guys, they have average skills. I mean, above average skills to a normal human, but I mean, it was a major league baseball player, average major league skills, but are above average players because they, they have heart hustle. I mean, um, now I'm being an idiot. This Eckstein, the second shortstop for the, the Angels, that guy didn't have a great arm. He didn't run particularly fast. He didn't have crazy range, but you'd want that guy on your team if you're playing in the playoffs because he got all the little things done right, made all the big plays and was fearless when it came time. To, to, to be these clutch moments. So you, you need guys like that on your team as well. You can't just have all superstars. You need grinders. You need guys that are willing to put their body on the line. And also he played again in an era when there wasn't, the, the ballparks were much bigger. The ball didn't travel as well. And I, I, I'm still not sure if I heard you guys correctly. Did you say 22 home runs led the, led the league, the American League, or led second basements in the American League? Uh, yeah, 81, that was a strike season though. So it was a, abbreviated year I see but he still had 404 at bats I mean it wasn't like it was that short but anyway I'm just shocked right. that low of home runs so, okay that makes more sense now okay gotcha yeah yeah I was this yeah I forgot about that right here yeah strike season yeah right right anywho let's let's move into our vote tonight boys can't vote for your own um everybody will get a vote we're going to start with Paul you're in my upper corner yeah, Adam Sandler's words, not mine. O.J. Simpson, not a Jew, but guess who is? Hall of Famer Rod Carew. He converted. <laughs> Rod Carew. Hi, right. Kevin. Um, I mean, I'll just go. I'll go with the easy one. Knock it out, Joe Morgan. Joe Morgan. That's smart. That's smart. Um, Brian, go ahead. I this is really tough, but um, I look at. 
I look at Ryan Sandberg as a guy, I mean, you could pencil him into the all-star game, like, you know, all throughout like the eighties and the nineties, he was just like so consistent. So, um, you know, just a mainstay there. So I'm going to go with him. The good old days when you could actually pop the little bubble out on the all-star. Yeah. That's, that's, right. that's right. That's right. Yeah. You can grab a stack of them like this thick. That's right. Them all in. <laughs> that was great. Uh, so I'm going to go next. Uh, I'm going to take Mazeroski, not just because I have soft crap out there. Uh, he's got the, he's a Hall of Famer, of course, but he's got the biggest hit of anybody maybe in history. So I, I'm going to throw him on the list. I think he deserves it. So, Mario, come to you. You get last vote. Your choices are Robinson Cano, Robbie Alomar, Craig Biggio, and Bobby Gritch. I'll go with Robbie Alomar. I would have picked him anyway just because not only do I think he deserves to be up there, I think maybe Rod Crew edges him out. Uh, but, I, I, again, he's a friend and a teammate, and watching him play for one whole year every day was, was amazing. So Legacy Battles top five second basemen of the last 50 years. we got Joe Morgan, Rod Crew, Ryan Sandberg, Bill Mazeroski, Robbie Alomar. Nice job, guys. Let's move into our Q&A. And it looks like, uh, well, Paul and Brian, you guys both got two. So, Paul, go ahead and start us out. Yeah, Marty, I, I live in Florida, and I'm looking at your cities. You played in Minnesota, Toronto, Cleveland, Baltimore. Brr. I'm not mad at you. I don't blame you for falling asleep in the, in the tanning bed. I think – that's therapeutic, you know, but uh, that's not funny either, though, probably. Did that Was that just unbelievably painful? I mean, was that blown out of proportion? Well, to be honest, it was absolutely not correct. Uh, nobody falls asleep in a tanning bed because it's not possible. Yeah, they, have, they have emergency shutoff switches, and it's not possible. That was just something that a reporter obviously decided he wanted to say, and that's not what happened. What really happened is uh, when I was playing, I just it just was my condition is I would get very bad hair on my face and my neck and it was driving me crazy with, with my uniform rubbing and all that. So a friend of mine was a plastic surgeon and he was uh, doing laser hair removal. And this is the truth. I don't really care. It's just what happened. And he was removing it so it wouldn't be so thick and bother me. And when he did, he accidentally didn't turn on the cryogen the correct way. And it made... Because isn't it weird that there were like cigar-sized burns all over just where my beard is and and on my neck on my neck, and um, I just didn't want anybody really to know it was nobody's business and the, and I didn't want that doctor to have bad rep, rap for you know doing that to me because it wasn't how it was supposed to be and it just left these major burns that turned into blisters and actually I thought that would be scarred for the rest of my life but unfortunately it didn't happen that way but yeah uh, that I can promise you this it's one of the toughest years any person probably went through I, I, I guess I shouldn't say that but as an athlete and somebody that has to go through a lot of heckling and things like that is Jim between Jim Rome the media fans in general teammates just everybody just talking a lot of trash about tanning bed thing that didn't possibly happen and no matter what i said it wouldn't change the fact that they're going to say what they say so it really was it just kind of went with it but it was i really couldn't leave my house for two to three months because i had black scar cigar burns on my face it looked like and it was super embarrassing and super tough for me as a person to just have to listen to people just wearing me out every game in the outfield sleeping in the tanning bed maybe you'll get a hit i mean i heard everything everything you could think of in every way someone could try to like hurt someone's feelings or make them feel bad about themselves yeah i heard it all so it was a very unfortunate thing that happened and maybe i should have waited till after the season to do it but i had a day off and thought i would it would be fine so i'm paying paying the price for that choice that i made but again it made me a tougher person made me a tougher character that i, I could get through things and handle 
that sort of abuse and even like you saying joking around about it it, it is a joke for everybody it's a, it's a funny joke oh, i fell asleep in the but but it's not even true so it's like uh, whatever you can laugh about it if you want but it's just not really what happened so you got drafted in 1987 by the padres but you didn't sign and then you signed in 89 by the twins was there like maybe a reason why you didn't sign in 87 yeah there was a really good reason so i i was drafted in 87 out of you out of uh, high school here in vegas I was the first kid to have an apartment. I was, you know, young and just did just didn't even really want to play major league baseball at that time. I was more concerned about just enjoying college life, getting my degree. I wanted to go into medicine. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. That's how I wanted to stay involved in sports. But someday I really didn't think baseball was was my career. I it was so far away. I was like, that's nothing for me. You know, that's just a dream. I'm going to just focus on school and focus on getting my degree and moving on with my life. That being said. Uh, I then decided to get, to go to UNLV. That didn't work out because I actually played on a USA team during that time, and that's when I acquired the Steve Sack syndrome. I was a second baseman, and during that like seven day tournament, seven game tournament, and I grounded, fielded one ball, and threw it, and I hit the first base coach for the Japanese team. And from that point forward, I could not even play catch during warmups. I couldn't even stand on the first base line and play catch with another outfielder without fear that I was going to hit somebody. It got so bad that I quit UNLV because I couldn't even take infield outfield practice. I just couldn't. Wow. It's the worst thing that you can imagine. Steve Sachs syndrome is real. It's a bad thing. And that's why I ended up, like I told you, moving from the infield to the outfield. But that affected me and made me really think baseball wasn't for me because I just couldn't even throw the ball straight. I mean, I had a lot of tools and, and, I, and I did love playing the game, but it just didn't seem like it was really for me. So I didn't sign with the Padres. And then actually, to tell you the truth, when I signed with the Twins, Larry Corrigan had me on the phone. It was like two in the morning. The next, I was leaving at six to go to the Cape Cod League. And once you do that, you can't sign pro anymore. And I'm like, dude, I don't want to go. I don't want to play pro ball. I don't, I want to go play college. I want to go to USC. I want to get my degree. I want to become a surgeon for athletes. And he's like, well, we'll give you two years of free USC. You have no reason to go. We're going to give you a signing bonus. So I actually signed like this. Okay. All right. Okay. I'll do it. That was how I signed. It was, I didn't even want to. It was like more like, okay, well, I don't have any more excuses. So I guess I'll do it. So yeah, that's a little bit of my background that not a lot of people know. Zach Sinner was definitely real. I mean, Knobloch, Mackie Sasser, Rick Ankeel, Steve Blass. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's just crazy how many people it's happened to. But uh, yeah, Brian, your, mind is, your mind is a crazy thing. And once you get something stuck in your mind like that, and I played with Chuck a long time. He's a good dude too. And once you get that, in your, it's, I, it's, it's like anything in life. If you haven't experienced it, it's hard to relate to it. So I had experienced it. And when he went through that, I was like, oh, my God, I know exactly what he's going through. And no matter how much I went through therapy, I did all these sports psychologists, everything to try to, oh, you're not a bad thrower. You can throw straight. And it just didn't work. Brian, good. Well, I understand that you're close friends with Dana White. So uh, how did that friendship come about? And what's your take on this amazing rise of the popularity of the UFC? Well, actually, Dana and I have been friends since we've been like little kids. We used to go camping together with my parents. I've known them since that long ago. And actually, even before that, Lorenzo Fertitta was a good friend of mine. We played Pop Warner football together when we were like 10 years old. So obviously, if you don't know, he was the, him and his brother, Frank Fertitta, were the original owners of UFC, the original investors that put in 60 plus million to make it into what it was today. So yeah, uh, Dana and I have been good friends, great friends since we were little kids. Uh, 
he really is a huge baseball fan, huge Red Sox fan. And he kind of followed my career. And then he moved to Boston. I was there playing the Red Sox. It was like, we hadn't seen each other since high school. It's like, Oh my God. And then we just have been hanging out ever since then. We're just boys and we live right down the street from each other. He's, he's done what I think is almost impossible is to create a major sport in an era. Now the days when people have tried with football and other things, it just doesn't work. It's almost impossible to do what he did. And, um, and I can tell you this right now, there's not one nicer guy in the world. There's not one dude with a bigger heart, a more genuine person. And I mean that he's not fake. He's, he's a real dude. And he may be uh, abrasive at times and he may be very opinionated and he varies all of those things and more. But at the end of the day, he's a compassionate person that, that does more good for people than anybody even knows because he doesn't brag about it all the time. He's made people, has changed people's lives in so many ways. That it's just so hard to, to explain. I don't have time to get into all the things he's done, but one thing for sure is we were in Toronto and there was that big fight at the, where I played at, at um, the Sky Dome and he was there to do press and I was with him and he was going to sign autographs. There might've been 500 people in line and he's like, I'm signing every one of these autographs. And he stayed there for like five hours signing autographs. And I was like, you know, this is great. This is early in his career, early in the UFC, earlier in the UFC. I'm like, we'll see if he can maintain this kind of a, an attitude because as an athlete, I know that you can't sign every night for an hour after a game. You want to, but you just can't. It's just too hard. It's, it's too hard. to. You don't have the time and energy to do all the things you'd like to do. Anyway, the reason I'm mentioning this is to, even to this day, if anybody stops him in the street, anybody wants an autograph, anybody wants a picture, no matter what he's doing, he will make the time and he will stay there until the last person gets there request no matter what and it's it's he's never wavered i'm like he can't keep this pace up but he really has so again as as, as you can tell by the way i'm talking about him he's one of my best friends and he's just such a good guy so i can't say enough great things about him and i'm always around him so much when i retired with ufc that people thought that i worked for the ufc because i was at every event that flew to europe or wherever they went i would always tag along and he was nice enough to allow me to come along and, and experience all these ufc fights so yeah I, i'm a huge ufc fan though well, if he wants to do a greatest UFC fighter debate, send him our way. <laughs> uh, Kevin, yeah. Kevin, go ahead. Uh, so your first two seasons with Minnesota, I mean, you did you did pretty well. You got the AL Rookie of the Year in 95. You're out in the outfield, I believe, with Puckett. Yeah, did did anybody or, or no block, did any of them take you under their wing those first couple seasons and kind of mentor you? Or did you, you know, have that person there for you? And uh, what was it like playing with Puckett out in the outfield? I do as a beast. Yeah. Good, good questions. And it, it is actually, you have a good answer for that. Is that uh, when I was a rookie, it was me and Eddie Gordado and Brad Radke were the only rookies. And, and like a few years later, the twins were like my last year there. We had like 14 rookies. It was crazy. It was all rookies. But the point was back when I was a rookie, being a rookie then and being a rookie today are two different things. You, it was more like Kirby was took me under his wing in a huge, huge way. He like mentored me every day. He would tell me, and, and again, this is old school thinking. He'd be, rookies are to be seen, not to be heard. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you talking. I don't want to hear you mouthing off. You just be nice and quiet and do your job and do it well. And then he's like, okay, see this Louis Vuitton bag right here? Everywhere we go on the road, you're going to be carrying it. So I don't want to have to ask you again. I don't want to tell you again or see you walking around without my bag and, and have it on the bus. And I want it off the bus. In my, you know, I'm like, gotcha. But I swear to you, I think he put rolls of quarters in there because his bag weighed like 100 pounds. It was so heavy. I, and I think he did it just on purpose. And it was awesome because we bonded in that way. That he was like, look, he called me Rock. That was my nickname he gave me. And it was just like, 
just like a big brother. He was such a good dude and such a great mentor. And the way he played the game with passion and he just loved playing. And there was not a happier dude. And then you guys have seen him on TV and stuff. He just happy to be alive, happy to be playing ball. He was so naturally gifted. He, I've never seen a dude that could swing. He was five and eight, but he could hit a ball over his head or he could hit a ball four feet outside or he could hit a ball that bounced even. I think he got a base off a ball that bounced one time. So the, the dude was amazing. I was so fortunate to get a chance to play with him. And then the other person that was a huge influence on me was Paul Molitor. And I just saw him a, a couple months ago and it was unbelievable to see him again. He just such a great guy. Again, he, he gave me his 2,991st hit ball that was put into like a little case. He'd collected these and gave it to me and he gave me his 586 double and wrote on it. Here's something for you to shoot for in your career. Just such a good guy. All these guys are just amazing friends. And that's one thing I'd really like to say is that one of the things I really miss about playing baseball is being around 25 guys. And it's, it's amazing how in such a short period of time, people can become like family. They're like closer than family, even because you're just, you're fighting battles every day together. You're together 15, 20 hours. You're, you're together all the time. And it's amazing. These bonds that you develop in over time. And it's, it, it truly is like your brothers, you've done something that not a lot of people do. You were able to form a team. You, you get to be close and it's, it's just a, Baseball was just a really great time. And I don't necessarily miss the baseball as much as I miss the camaraderie and the friendships that I had. Well, before we let you go, tell us about this uh, umpire strike zone thing you were okay. discussing earlier. Yeah. I, I, believe me, I, if I get rolling on this, it, it could be two hours and I could not stop. Because <laughs> when I start telling people this, they don't believe me. I'm like, these are stories that every baseball player can say. And it's, it's just the way it was. And it's not saying anything negative against these umpires. It's just the way it was. So we're playing in, in St. Louis. I believe I was with the Twins. It was when Interleague had just started. Dennis Eckersley was 150, and he was still at pitching. And he's Dennis Eckersley, right? So he's got a three-run close situation, and I'm the first to lead off the ninth inning. So I go up there, to, and I'm a rookie. I walk up to the plate, and I'm like, okay, it's Dennis Eckersley. But he was the very end of his career. He was he's still a good pitcher, but nothing like he was in his prime. That being said, first pitch slider, it was at least a foot outside. And, I, and he called strike one. So I looked up, and I'm like, no farther than that, right? He didn't, didn't even, he, he didn't even look at me. I said, okay, next pitch, two feet outside, strike two. I looked at him, I'm like, look, I, cause I'm trying to be respectful and I totally understand that rookies are not supposed to, to complain and he's a veteran. But I said, look, there's no farther than that, right? And he goes, son, that's Dennis Eckersley. He's a Hall of Famer. I suggest you swing the bat. So I <laughs> said, okay, the next pitch he threw, it literally was four feet outside. I just swung the bat and walked back to the dugout. Cause I'm like, I, I have no chance here. This he's telling me that if this guy even throws the ball and it comes anywhere where the catcher can catch it, he's going to call it a strike. So I suggest you swing. So I swung like a, an idiot. I walked back to the dugout and Tom Kelly's like, really? Are you even trying? What, what was that? And I'm like, well, he told me that no matter where the pitch was going, I'd better swing because it's Dennis Eckersley on the mound and he's going to call it a strike. So I guess my point is when you're already a superstar, and you have umpires that are giving you three feet outside a strike and you're telling the hitter, you'd better get a bigger bat or swing or step on the plate or something because I'm calling whatever comes over. Whatever this catcher catches is a strike. So it makes good players great, makes great players Hall of Famers. So anyway, and I'm not saying every call was like that. Believe me, I'm not taking nothing away from them. I'm just saying that's how it was. 
So now the second uh, one I'll tell you, and then we'll end on this, is Latroy Hawkins, who now, obviously, everybody knows, 22 or 23 years, he played in the major leagues. But at the beginning, he was a starting pitcher, and he was just one of those guys that would just give up one big hit every game that would cause him to just not have great numbers. Anyway, we're playing Tampa, and Wade Boggs is, when they put together that all-star team of older guys, Wade Boggs was leading off the game, and Latroy Hawkins threw the first pitch right down the middle. I mean, completely down the middle. The catcher caught it. He looked the umpire and he says, where was that? He says, if it's not good enough for Mr. Boggs, it's not good enough for me. Throw the ball back to the pitcher. And I'm wow. telling you, that's two, and I could tell you 2,000 of those stories. It's literally all all the time that stuff happened. And it was super frustrating for me as a player because I'm like, I'm up against the eight ball here because and there's umpires that have followed me out to my position because I complained and they'd be like, you're a fucking, you're a rookie. You're about you keep your mouth. I'm like, oh, sorry. And you learn that you just, as a rookie, you're not going to get the calls. You're going to get hit by pitches by uh, Roger Clemens hit you on purpose. You're going to get hit by people that just want to show rookies their place. And you're going to get umpires that say, I'm calling anything close to strike on you because you're a rookie. So it's, I think I, you look at the players today and you get some of these young and up and coming rookies and they're studs and they're really good and they're comfortable because the, the times have changed. Rookies are accepted as, as veteran players. The veteran players don't look at rookies like they used to. They accept them more as, hey, if you're good, we want you on the team and we're going to accept you and treat you like you've been here forever, which wasn't how it was when I was a rookie. And I think before that it was even worse. So I guess um, – I guess my point is the times have changed, things change, baseball's changed, and um, the umpire's strike zones and things now are under scrutiny. As you can see, the K zone, these guys can't call a pitch three feet outside and get away with it anymore. So I think it makes it a little easier for the hitters to hit and the, actually the pitchers, too, to understand what the strike zone is because a lot of times pitchers would tell me, I don't even know what the strike zone is. I'll throw a pitch right down the middle, call it a ball, throw one a foot outside and call it a strike. It, it doesn't do him very much good either because – he doesn't know where to throw the ball to get a, to get that edge. So anyway, that's my ramble about the strike zone and about the umpires, uh, but it, it really was a thing back then. Well, thank you, Marty Cordova, so much for joining us today. We appreciate that. That was uh, yeah. good information. Thank you so much. I want to remind everybody, make sure you hit subscribe on whatever you're listening on and just continue to watch each episode and join that Facebook group too. Thank you for joining us. Everyone have a great night. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it.